Revelation chapter 19, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As we get into this section here, we see this, the celebration for the fact that the marriage of the Lamb has come. I want to just take you back into a little bit of scripture study tonight to kind of lay the foundation. A Hebrew marriage actually had three parts. The first part was the betrothal. Now, we're not going to take the time to turn there because most of us should know it. I'm just going to give you the scriptures. and You can go look at it yourself. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Go ahead and write that down. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. If you remember the story of Mary and Joseph and how Mary and Joseph were engaged, if you will, they were betrothed to each other. They hadn't had their marriage ceremony yet. They hadn't consummated the marriage, but they were what we would call engaged, but they were betrothed. Now, it was a very legal, legally binding in, engagement. Uh, and so that's why when Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, and he knows it ain't from him, he's thinking somebody else. He doesn't understand it's from God. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. And so that's when, you know, the angel comes and says to him, look, what's in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then he took her to be his wife. The betrothal was the first part of the marriage ceremony. And the betrothal was when the father would approve or agree for a price to purchase the bride. And once she was purchased, the betrothal was now binding. She was to make herself ready. The groom went away to make ready the preparations so that he would, when he, everything was in place and ready, he would come back at a time she did not know, and he would come and take her to be with him, and they would have a private marriage ceremony, and then would come the marriage feast. So those are the three parts, and we're going to break them all down tonight. I'm going to show them to you from Scripture. The first part of the marriage ceremony for the Hebrew marriage ceremony was the betrothal, and that was the purchasing of the bride. The price for the purchasing was agreed upon. It was paid, and once she was purchased by the bridegroom, she was to stay and wait. She did not know when. Our day, in our culture today, we set the day and all that kind of stuff and when the wedding's going to be. But in the Hebrew mindset, there was no understanding of what day the marriage ceremony, the consummation was going to take place. She was to make herself ready. The groom would go away to his father's place, make ready the preparations. When they were all set, the father would say, you're ready to go. Go get your bride. He would go get her. That's the second part where he would come and take her to be with him. There was a very private marriage ceremony where they would consummate the marriage. And then once that was done, they would then announce to everybody and the big party and the wedding feast would begin. Those are the three parts. The betrothal, the coming to take the bride in the private ceremony, and then the marriage feast or the marriage supper. This feast, these feasts would last sometimes weeks depending on how much money the father had and how big the celebration was. And as you're going to see tonight, as we lay this all out, I believe that the Bible is showing us that the millennial kingdom is the marriage feast. Now, let's take a look at what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14. Actually, before we go to John 14, go to 2 Corinthians 11. Let's go there first. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look at verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, hopefully you do understand that the Bible teaches that when we respond to God's offer of salvation, the purchase price was agreed upon by our Father, was it not? And the purchase price was the, the blood of his own son, the death of his own son. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6 says we have been bought with a price. That's why we're to glorify God with our bodies. He, we've been purchased. We were betrothed. We become his. We haven't had the marriage ceremony yet. 
Because in John 14, which I referenced just a second ago, look again now at John 14, look at verses 1, 2, and 3, what Jesus told his disciples. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Do you see that? Jesus said, in my Father's house, look, think of the context. Where my Father is, there's many rooms. By the way, they already exist. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. That's the rapture. And it's also the second part of the marriage ceremony that's going to happen for us who are the church as he comes to gather us and take us to be with him. Now, let me also remind you of a couple of things. For years, we Christians have heard preachers say that it took God six days to make the whole world. And he's been working on my place in heaven for 2000 years. It's going to be beautiful. No. That when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, it meant I go to the cross. You see, do you really think Jesus is up in heaven right now working a hammer and a saw and some paint and some spackle? He's building you a house. No, no, listen to what he said. In my Father's house are, they already exist, many rooms. When he said, I go to prepare a place for you, he was talking about the cross. How he prepared the way for us to go with him to the Father was through his death and his resurrection. He's already prepared the place for us. He's not preparing a place for us. It was prepared at the cross and at the, at the tomb, empty tomb. He's already prepared it. And one day when the Father says it's time, the ones who've been betrothed to him. Remember how Paul said, have you been betrothed? And I want to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's going to come back and take us to be with him where he is. It's a wonderful picture there of the rapture that Jesus was talking about. Go one more passage to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, look at verses 25 through 32. As Paul is teaching on the husband-wife relationship, he starts bringing out a deeper truth that the husband and wife relationship is supposed to be a picture of Christ in his church. Ephesians chapter 5, look at verses 25 through 32. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does, th does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church." And so, folks, hopefully you do understand that when you responded to the offer of salvation, when you said yes and Jesus gave you his, his spirit to, as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come, you were betrothed to Jesus Christ. He then went back to his father. And when his father says he's going to come and take us to be with him. And then when he comes back to the earth, we're going to come back with him. And the marriage feast is going to occur during the millennial kingdom. Now, there's something about this that most Christians don't understand yet. And hopefully you'll be able to see it tonight from the scriptures. But I'm not going to tell you about it until I talk about a couple other aspects of this. As, you, as I said before, the coming of the groom for the bride is uh, not known as to the day or hour when, this, when the father is going to say it was time. And the son will come and snatch away his bride for a private ceremony. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as though others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And again, Paul giving us a little more information about this time of the rapture. Paul himself later on in 1 Corinthians 15 says, let me tell you a secret. We're not all going to die. But we're all going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. 
And that's when the rapture comes, when he comes and he takes his bride. Listen, he's going to take us to go be with him. There's going to be a private marriage ceremony. And then when he comes back to the earth to set up his kingdom, the millennial kingdom is going to be the marriage celebration. But there's still something more to this that most people don't understand. But I'm not going to tell you about that just yet. Go to Matthew chapter 8. I want to whet your appetite so that you say, what is it? What is it? So that you're ready. Because actually, what I'm going to tell you in just a second, most Christians don't understand this. And to be honest with you, I haven't seen it myself until just recently, within the last couple of years of really digging into this. And as I've talked to a few other friends of mine who I respect their study, we're all coming to the conclusion that there's something here about the marriage supper of the Lamb and the marriage of the Lamb that most Christians have been missing. And I can't wait to show it to you. And we're going to look at that tonight in great detail. And to be honest with you, that's pretty much most of all we're going to look at tonight, this thing that most of us have missed. But look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 12. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 12, it says, When he, meaning Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't let the term kingdom of heaven throw you off. That means the kingdom of God. Because Matthew was writing his gospel to the Jews. And the Jews would not say God's name. They wouldn't even say God. So whenever Jesus and all the other Gospels talks about the kingdom of God, Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. And that's thrown a lot of us off. And that's why a lot of people think the kingdom of heaven is in heaven and it's some spiritual ethereal thing. No, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is referring to here is a, the literal millennial kingdom on the earth. It's the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, in, in order to help you see that, let me just give you a couple of quick commercials for where we're going to be going in the next two weeks. I'm going to do this verbally. And I'll, you can, we'll be looking at these scriptures in the next couple of weeks, but I only want you to see this. If there is no literal on this earth coming kingdom of Jesus where he rules and reigns, then God broke his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember he said they're going to sit at the table in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob told? And we're going to go into this in great detail. I'll show it to you so you don't have to write it down now. God's told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob more than once, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. But as you know, hopefully, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never received the land, did they? They were sojourners, wanderers, as the whole time they lived in it. Hebrews chapter 11 actually says twice, these died not having received what was promised. Jesus himself also said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. Well, if the kingdom is just spiritual, when are we going to inherit the earth? When are you going to get the earth? By the way, who's the ruler of the earth right now? And he will be until he's bound for that thousand years. Folks, the king, kingdom to come is, yes, the kingdom is now in the hearts and lives of those of us who have received God and have his spirit and he, where he rules and reigns. But it's much more. It is a literal physical kingdom. And I can give you one of the greatest evidences of that. And I want you to look at this because I want you to see it. Go to Acts chapter 1. Go to Acts chapter 1. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3, and then we're going to jump to verse 6. In Acts chapter 1, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about what? The kingdom of God. Don't miss this. The, Luke says, he, he wrote the gospel of Luke to Theophilus, this, this ruler, to prove that Jesus was who he was. And he said, I wrote to you an earlier book. Now I'm going to write you another one. I wrote to you about everything he began to do and teach. And then after he suffered, he appeared for 40 days 
And he taught about the kingdom of God. Don't miss this. This is after his death, after his resurrection, before he ascended to the Father. For 40 days, he taught the, the, the church or the believers. The church hadn't quite really begun yet because Pentecost is when it really takes full force. But the disciples, he taught them about the kingdom of God. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom of God for 40 days and the teaching of the kingdom of God was that it is not a literal kingdom on the earth that the Jews misunderstood and that the kingdom of God was just spiritual and in the hearts and the lives of those who would trust in him. And one day the world's going to come to an end and we go be with the Lord and that's all. The disciples wouldn't have asked that question after 40 days of him teaching about the kingdom of God, would they? But they still were expecting it to be on the earth. That's why they say, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom of God is literal, folks. And that's why Abraham, sorry, Jesus talked about how many are going to come and eat at the table in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be made up of Gentiles and the nation of Israel. And this is where we're going tonight. This is what we're going to spend all our time, if not most of our time, dealing with. I don't believe the wedding feast is just for the church. I believe that the Bible teaches that the church is the bride of Christ right now. And I believe the Bible teaches that right now there is a distinction between the church and Israel. But I'm going to break from most prophecy people. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on the earth, the bride will be made up of the church and Israel. And the tribulation saints. It's going to be all together. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 19 and look at what is being said. In Revelation chapter 19, look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, if you understand what the Bible's already been teaching, the church has already been raptured. We've already gone and had the private marriage ceremony. But when Jesus comes back to the earth, the celebration is the marriage of the Lamb has come. And what I want to do tonight, and I'm going to use a lot of scriptures, and I'm going to spend a lot of time reading to you tonight. And I want you to write a lot of these down because I want you to go back and look at them. And I wish I could take time to show you more, but there isn't enough time tonight. We'll spend the next three weeks at least dealing with the millennial kingdom. I want to show you that in the scripture, and I'm going to lay this ahead of time what I'm going to do, and then I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you from the scripture tonight that Israel was described as the bride of Christ. And that God was their husband. I'm going to show you that the scripture teaches that because of their unfaithfulness, God divorced Israel. He did it first to the northern kingdom, Israel, and then he did it to the southern kingdom, Judah. And that the Bible teaches that in the very last days, at the very end, Israel is going to come back to their first husband and he's going to remarry them. And I think that Revelation 19 is talking about the marriage of the lamb has come. It's already occurred for us. And remember, and we're going to look at this tonight. What's the purpose of God saving the Gentiles? We've already seen this. Why is God saving the Gentiles? To make the Jews jealous. I can't wait to show you how much the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, he remarries Israel. And the bride will be made up for eternity of Israel and the church and the tribulation saints as well. All those who have their faith in God. And we'll show that again tonight as we take a look later on at Revelation 22 with the new Jerusalem coming down after the millennial kingdom. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And he says, let me show you the bride. And on the 12 gates are who? The 12 tribes, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the foundation of the 12 apostles, the Lamb. Both the Israel and the church together will be living in that new Jerusalem, in that beautiful city. Like I said, I love J. Vernon McGee's teaching. And if you've been listening to him this week, he talked about how, and he even said that in the last couple of days, that he thinks the New Jerusalem is just the church. And for years, I did too, until I began to really dive into the scriptures. And I can't wait to show it to you tonight. But he said that the, the church will be the only ones living in the New Jerusalem, and that the Old Testament saints and the, the nation of Israel will allowed to visit it, but then they have to go back. Why would God put their names on the gates if they don't get to live there? The church is going to be made up of Israel and the church. Or the bride, let me put it this way. The bride is going to be made up of Israel and the church. 
We are the bride right now. And we've been betrothed. We're going to have a marriage, private marriage ceremony when he comes and snatches us away. We're going to come back with him and we're going to celebrate the marriage supper and the marriage feast during the millennium. But the party's going to be awesome. But it ain't going to be because of us. It's going to be because of what's happening with Israel. Let me lay this all out for you. Get your pen and paper out and get ready because I can't wait to show it to you. Go to Isaiah 54. <clears throat> Isaiah 54. Look at verses 1 through 8. Israel has been described in Scripture as being married to God. It says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, and break forth into singing, and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations." And will people the desolate cities? For you're not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your who? It's your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted. And grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Now is God speaking here to the church, or is He speaking to Israel? How do you know? How can you show me that He's talking here to Israel and not the church? He will never forsake us. He's promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He gives us his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And then in our inheritance, he says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But as you're going to see, he had been the husband of Israel. She was his bride. But because of her unfaithfulness, he divorced her and he deserted her for a time. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. But he says, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. So don't be surprised that the bride is going to include Israel. They've been his bride before we were. Let me show you another piece. Go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 40. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 40. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Don't, don't stop right there for a second. For years, I also fell into the same kind of misunderstanding. As much as we are a part of the new covenant, and the Bible does teach in the New Testament that we're, we're recipients of the new covenant. For years, we've tried to make this passage apply to the church. But I love how God does something here to clearly delineate that he's talking that there's going to be a time that he does this for Israel. Because he says, for Israel and who? And Judah, that's important. You see, because I could show you passages. There are many people in churches that teach amillennial theology that they could show you that the church is Israel in the sense that the Bible talks about how not all who are Israel are of Israel. You know, all of Israel are Israel and how is of faith. And they can build a doctrine that the church has replaced Israel. But as you're going to see, what he's talking to here is he's talking about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You remember, after David was king, and after Solomon was king, Solomon's son became king and the nation got split in two, didn't they? The northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom was called Judah. And so when God says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, he's clearly not talking about the church. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 1, let me tell you a mystery. Gentiles are going to have his spirit within us. That wasn't a mystery that the Spirit was going to be in the Jews because he had already prophesied that in Ezekiel 36, that in the last days he's going to erase their sin and put his Spirit within them. But let me tell you a mystery, he says, we Gentiles are going to have the Spirit of God within you, the hope of glory. Let me tell you another mystery, Paul says, a real secret that hadn't been revealed in previous generations, that the Gentiles are co-heirs. 
partakers of the promises to Israel, that was not made known in previous generations. The fact that Gentiles would be saved, yes, the Bible had talked about that Gentiles would be saved in the Old Testament. But Paul said, let me tell you something. The Gentiles now are partakers of the promises to Israel. But at the same time, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He's talking about the Jews here, not the church. Look at what he says next. In verse 32, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was what? I was their husband. He was married to Israel, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is its na his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall re be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Garib, and shall tur then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Clearly talking about the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. But because of Israel's unfaithfulness, in worshiping other gods, and we already looked in our study of Babylon and the destruction of Babylon, God sees worshiping other gods as what? Sexual immorality. That's what he was described it as. And you're going to see some words tonight that are kind of very, I'll be honest with you, they made me red in the face when I was studying it. And so just be ready. You're going to be surprised at some of the things that God does and that he says in the description of how he viewed the nation of Israel's uh, adultery. Because of her unfaithfulness in worshiping other gods, God gave the nation of Israel a certificate of divorce. For a time. You say, what? Well, let me show you. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Look at verses 6 through 18. The Lord has said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she didn't return. And her treacherous sister Judah, sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithful one Israel, that I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord." And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt and that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master, I will take you one from a city and two from a family and bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart and who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in, the, in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. By the way, why during the millennial kingdom will people not be talking about the Ark of the Covenant or even remember it? <clears throat> why? Jesus will be there. God himself will be there reigning from Jerusalem. They won't need an Ark of the Covenant. Jesus himself is going to be there. 
They won't even remember it. By the way, as a quick little aside, too many Christians have wasted too many years trying to figure out where the ark is now and all this kind of stuff. The Bible already says there's going to be a point where you don't even remember it and it won't be made again. So why are you worried about it? Why do we want to go back and find the ark? We've got Jesus right here. <laughs> Isn't that silly? Have Jesus living within you and you're more interested in finding the ark? Don't get caught up on all those websites that they have figured out where it is. Go to Ezekiel 23. Ezekiel 23, look at verses 1 through 18. <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. There were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth, and their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Ahola was the name of the elder, and Aholiab the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters as for their names, Ohola is Samaria, and Aholiba is Jerusalem. Again, whenever the Bible uses symbolic language, it'll tell you what it symbolizes. Ohola, Samaria, played the whore while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers. The Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple, governors and commanders, and all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them. And she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness, they seized her sons and her daughters, and as for her, they killed her with the sword, and she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. Her sister, Oholiba, saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister, in her lust and in her whoring, which she was worse than that of her sister, she lusted after the Assyrians, the governors and the commanders, warriors clothed in full armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way, but she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waists and flowing turbans on their heads, all of them having the appearance of officers, a likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. When she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her in the bed of love, and they defiled her with their, their whoring lust. And after she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. When she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I had turned in disgust from her sister. So here we've seen two passages in Jeremiah 3 and Ezekiel 23 that even though Israel was the bride of God and he was her husband, because of her unfaithfulness, he gave her a certificate of divorce. Israel first and then Judah. Now, some of us have a real problem with this. But has anybody read the book of Hosea? If you read the book of Hosea, you'll know that God tells the prophet Hosea, I want you to do something for me. It's not going to be a fun assignment. But I want you to go and marry a corrupt woman. I want you to go marry a prostitute. By the way, in the Bible, we know her name is Gomer. And he produced children with her. And then she was unfaithful to him, and he had to divorce her. And then God tells Hosea to go buy her back and to remarry her, even after all that she had done and the shame that she had brought to him. And folks, he was told to do that because that was a picture of what God has done and will do with Israel. Oh, God's not done with Israel. I can't wait to show you the rest of this now. Okay, we've already laid the foundation that Israel was described as the wife of God, and he was their husband, her husband. He gave her a certificate of divorce, Israel first, then Judah because of that, and he let the Assyrians and the Babylonians take them captive and do all that stuff. He goes, you want to worship their gods? You want to worship their idols? Go ahead. I'll let you. And by the way, doesn't the Bible teach that what Satan, God does with us when we want to run with Satan? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a man in that church who's sleeping with his father's wife, and the scripture says, hand him over to Satan so that his soul may be saved and his flesh demolished. In other words, when your kids are little and you're cooking something in an oven, and the glass is hot, and your kids walk up as a two-year-old or a three-year-old and try to touch it, you as a parent say, honey, don't touch it, it's hot. But if they choose to keep putting their hand up, you'll say again, honey, don't touch it, it's hot. 
But if they keep doing it, what are you eventually going to do? You're going to say, go ahead, touch it. Why? That's the only way they're going to learn. God calls to us in love and even tells us as Christians, look, (laughs) Satan's looking for someone to devour. Don't do these things. Stay away from it. Don't look at those things. Click red X. But if you want to, and you won't listen, go run with Satan. Isn't that what he did with the prodigal son story? The son came to his father and says, you're as good as dead to me. I don't want to wait until you die to get my inheritance. You're dead to me now. Most of us as human parents would say over my dead body. But the father in this story who is God does what? He says, you want to go run and do that? Go. Get your fill. And God said to the nation of Israel, you want to go after those other gods, which aren't gods, you're going to see in second? Go ahead. But you're going to suffer because of it. But when you come to your senses, I'll be right here. And Israel is going to come to her senses. Don't let Christianity, and there's a lot of Christians, say that God's done with Israel. He's not. The scripture is so clear. You want to be real clear? Go to Hosea chapter 2. I can't wait to read this one to you. This one makes the preacher and me want to start shouting, but I'm too Baptist, so I'm not allowed. But look at Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. By the way, the children born to Hosea and Gomer, God had them name them, not my people, no mercy. That was the names that he had given the two children, the son and the daughter, born to Gomer and Hosea. You're not my people, and you'll not receive mercy. Chapter 2, though, God says, say to your brothers, you're my people, and to your sisters, you've received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, not right now. And I'm not her husband. Not right now, because remember, he had given her the divorce. Plead with her that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I will also have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, and she has conceived them as, who has conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. But she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now and she didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain the wine and the oil who and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season and I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, declares, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, I love this. Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Does anybody know when that's going to happen? When God is going to allure Israel into the wilderness? At the midpoint of the tribulation. When he's going to allow all this stuff to happen to her, he's going to call her out into the wilderness and begin to speak tenderly to her. Let me just say this to you as well. A further evidence of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is the Bible teaches in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that he's not appointed us to suffer wrath. But in his judgment of Israel, in the tribulation period, he's going to be pouring his wrath out on Israel. We're going to be spared the time of God's wrath. He's not going to do that to his bride. Your your, your husband, 
God is not going to pour out his wrath on you if you're his bride. And we are right now through Jesus Christ. We've been betrothed. He's going to take us to be with him. And we're going to avoid the time of his wrath. Well, we're still going to suffer stuff in this life for his sake. But the wrath of God will not be poured on us. Listen, but it will be poured out on Israel during the tribulation period. And he's going to make it, as we just read, where they can't do their sacrifices. They can't do their offerings. What's going on in the temple at this time when they're running into the wilderness? The Antichrist has stepped into the wing of the temple. He's going to put an end to the sacrifice. And you know what's really cool about this? When God comes and redeems Israel, it won't be because they started the sacrifices back up and they were doing it all good. He's going to make it so they can't. And he's going to come and say, it's always been by grace. It's always been by grace through faith. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Do you see it? Revelation 19, verse 7. Hallelujah. The marriage of the Lamb has come. It's not talking about the church. We've already had that. This is Israel. You're going to call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. We'll deal with that in the next few weeks as we take a look at how awesome it's going to be. The animals won't be to be feared anymore. And the creeping things of the ground, and I'll abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I'll make you lie down in safety, and I will, listen, betroth you to me forever." And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you're my God. Isn't that cool? Israel is going to be a part of the bride. For years, I thought that the church was the only ones who were going to be the bride. Oh, no. We've just been, as you're going to see in just a second, we've been grafted in by the grace of God just to make Israel jealous. And don't become proud thinking we're better than them. Thank God for the fact that he let us be a part of something that he has had in mind between him and the nation of Israel for his glory in front of all the nations forever and ever. I just referenced it. But let me, actually, we won't go there just yet. Let me show you one more passage. Go to Isaiah 62. Go to Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as, burning as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and the land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Folks, I hope you've seen it tonight. It can't get any more clear than that scripture has said. Israel was the wife of God. But because of their unfaithfulness, he divorced her for a time. But at the end, after he's purified her in that whole process of the tribulation period, he's going to call her into the wilderness and allure her. And he's going to speak tenderly to her. And she's going to return to the, her first husband. And he's going to remarry her. And that's why when he comes back and the marriage feast happens, it's not just us who are going to be celebrated. It's going to be Israel. And then with all this laid out, Romans 11 makes a lot of sense. I was talking with a pastor one time about how clear Romans 11 is. And he, said, he literally said to me, he goes, you're the first person I've ever heard say that Romans 11 is clear. I'm like, have you read it? Listen to what it says in Romans 11. 
I ask then, Paul says, has God rejected his people, meaning Israel? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask... Did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kind, then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may know, now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that they have, may, may have mercy on all. Do you see it? Paul says to the church, hey, don't think that you're better. Don't think that he's done with them. He's not. You're actually been grafted in against nature. They're going to be grafted back in. And if, if their trespass means riches for the world, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And you want further proof? I referenced it, but go to Revelation 21, verses 9 through 14. Revelation 21, verses 9 through 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me saying, come and I'll show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a more, most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had, great high wall, had a great high wall and twelve gates, and at the gates are twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, the north three, and the south three, and the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. So who's going to make up the bride for eternity? Israel and the church. This is really, really clear. Yes, there is a distinction between Israel and the church right now. And there will be until he remarries them. But at that time, when he comes back, the wedding feast is going to be the third part of the celebration. Remember I told you at the beginning, the marriage, Hebrew marriage had three parts. The betrothal, 
the coming and snatching away of the bride for the private marriage ceremony, and then the party. The millennial kingdom is going to be the party. That's why Jesus said, many are going to come from the east and the west and sit at the table in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be a celebration. You want further proof of how, what a cool celebration it's going to be? Go real quick to um, Revelation chapter 19 and look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Let me ask you this question. Did John know that you're not supposed to worship anyone but God? I mean, think, I think any, if anybody knew, John would know. Then how come John falls at the feet of the angel and starts worshiping? I mean, he knows better. How come? It's all right there. By the way, that was a question. The, the angel is God's messenger. Why is John? He's so overwhelmed by what he's just been shown. Folks, I don't think we have any clue. And I hope to be used to God just a little bit in the next few weeks to show you how awesome the millennial kingdom is going to be. When John's given a glimpse of this remarrying of Israel and the marriage supper and the wedding feast and blessed are those who are invited. By the way, who's invited to the wedding feast? Everybody. Those who are responding by faith are the ones who get to go. Everyone's invited. Many are called, but few are chosen. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God because it is what? Power of God for salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Matthew 22, he talks about verses 1 through 14, the kingdom being like a big wedding feast where the father invites his people. And the Jews reject him. He sends out again the servants. They reject him. Then what does he say? Go into the highways and the byways and invite everybody else in. Matthew 25, with the parable of the wise virgins and the ten virgins, the wise and the foolish. Some were looking for him to come when he came back. Others weren't ready. And if you look at that story, he goes and the wedding feast happens and they shut the door. And they come knock on the door and he says, I never knew you. Again, was he talking to the church or was he talking to Israel? Remember, Jesus' teaching most likely was almost all of it for the, for the nation of Israel. Jesus himself said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He was teaching the nation of Israel, I'm going to come back. And you're going to miss out on the party if you're not ready. The cool thing is, John is given a glimpse of the fact that all the prophecy is one day going to be fulfilled. And Israel is going to be remarried. And he's going to betroth them to himself forever. And then the party's going to begin. And by the way, like I said earlier, the party and the wedding feast lasted as long as how wealthy the father was. This party's going to be a thousand years. And you know who's going to ruin the party? You know who the party crasher is going to be? Satan, when he's released from the pit at the end of the thousand years, he's going to crash the party. But God will take care of that too, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. I want to show you a couple quick things in the time that we have left here. Only, and I want you to just write some of these scriptures down, and, and you'll have to go and look at them later, because time-wise, I don't have time to read them to you. But only the righteous, believing Jews will be able to enter the millennial kingdom. And only the righteous, believing Gentiles will be able to enter the millennial kingdom. All right, the passage that talks about that for the nation of Israel is going to be in Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through, th through 44. Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 44. I won't have the time tonight to read that to you, but let me just give you briefly what it says that he's going to gather the nation of Israel at the end, and he's going to have them all pass under the rod. And the righteous will be able to enter the kingdom. The unrighteous will be cast out. So that's going to, at the very end, he's going to be purifying the nation of Israel and who, determining who gets to enter the kingdom. We also see in two passages put together, Joel chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Joel 3, 1, 2, and 3. And Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 we see that Joel says that he's also going to gather when he comes back and he sets up his kingdom, he's going to gather all the Gentile nations that are left after the tribulation period. And he's going to judge them according to how they treated Israel. It's very, very clear. Remember, he's going to save Israel first, and then he's going to destroy his enemies and the ones that live through it, he's going to gather them. And Joel 3, 1 through 3 says he will determine their righteousness according to how they treated 
Israel. Matthew 25, it says in verse 36 through 41, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He's going to sit on His throne. By the way, when He comes and sits on His throne, where's the throne going to be? It has to be here. He doesn't go and sit on His throne. He comes and sits on His throne. The throne is here on the earth, and He's going to gather all the nations, it says, and He's going to judge them. Well, He's going to separate them, as the Bible says, as the shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he'll say to the sheep, come on into the kingdom, because when I was thirsty and hungry and in prison, you treated me good. By the way, are we granted heaven salvation because of how we, what we do? No, this is determining who enters the kingdom. Remember, the kingdom's on the earth. And they said, when did we do that? He said, whenever you've done it to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it unto me. Who are his brothers? It's Israel. Joel 3 shows us at the end of the tribulation how he determines which Gentiles live into the millennial kingdom will be determined by how they treated Israel during the time that they were under their all, the attack that they went through. Praise the Lord, we are already coming back with him. We're going to rule and reign with him. We've already been granted the kingdom because he's already saved us and made us his. And one day we're going to have the private marriage ceremony. And I think it's coming quick. I think it's coming real quick. And then when he comes back to set up his kingdom on the earth, we'll come with him. But again, only the righteous will be allowed, Jew and Gentile, and the Scripture talks about that. I need to close tonight with a small word of caution. Look at the reaction of the angel to when John falls at his feet to worship him. He rejects the worship, and he points him back to God. The angel is just the messenger, the servant, and so it is with us. We have a tendency sometimes to want to climb the ladder in Christendom. One of the biggest problems I deal with as I travel around and help churches get back to the Scriptures and what it means to walk with God is a lot of our churches today have associate pastors who are senior pastor. Let, let me say that to you again. There are those who have been gifted by God to be an associate pastor, and that's all He's wired them to be. But the mentality of the church is, when are you going to move up the ladder? And a lot of churches talk the associate into becoming the senior. But the scripture actually says in Romans chapter 3, sorry, chapter 12, verses 3 and following, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. We've all been given a role. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. You're just a servant of the Lord. I'm just a servant of the Lord. Avoid the danger of saying, well, I like so-and-so's teaching better than so-and-so's teaching. Well, you're starting to glorify the messenger. The messenger said to when he started to get worship, said, no, 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 no. I'm just a servant, just like you. We all have been different, given different roles. You just worship God. So avoid yourself trying to climb the ladder and look for people's glory. And avoid yourself giving man or servants of God glory. They're just, but so-and-so is a really good preacher. Well, some are given five, some are given two, and some are given one, each according to their ability. But God said to the one who had been given five and the one who had been given two, well done. So don't start thinking the one with five versus the one with two is a better in God's eyes. He's not. The one with two is just as glorified in God's eyes. Find out what your role is. Enjoy it. Don't worry about climbing the ladder. And don't fall into that trap of glorifying man. Lastly, look at what it says in Revelation 19, the end of verse 10. It says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let me read that to you again. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is to point people to Jesus. Do not get more excited about figuring out prophecy than seeing who it's all pointed to. That's a danger for us who want to take it serious, who want to study it, who want to take it literally and have it come together. And we start to see it come together. I have to watch myself as well because, man, that's pretty cool. Some of the stuff we're seeing tonight, isn't it? Oh, just wait for the next few weeks. I can't wait to show you. But we can get so excited about figuring out prophecy that we forget the fact that, you know what really jumped out to me through tonight's study as I prepared and worked on this over the, the, the days and weeks that I've been preparing for tonight? God's merciful. God's merciful. What did any of us do that he would just choose to save Gentiles just by saying, I died for you? I rose from the dead, and now I'm offering it to you. Just receive it. What did any of us do? Nothing. 
While we were his enemies, when we were powerless, he died for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Man, he's gracious. And how many times I could show you how God said to the nation of Israel, I have every right to wipe you off the face of the earth. In Malachi chapter 3, God says, I, the Lord, do not, do not change. Therefore, you, Israel, are not destroyed. Why is Israel still here? Because he made promises to the forefathers. Remember, the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. When we look at this prophecy and all that he's going to do, let's not think of ourselves greater than the Jews. And as we look at the nation of Israel and what's going on, pray for them. But pray that they will soon make themselves ready by returning to their first husband. It's going to happen. But boy, does that tell you something about the husband. That he would actually be looking forward to the day when he comes and he remarries him. I hope the more you start to understand the scriptures, the more you start to fall in love with Jesus. Thanks so much for coming. We'll see you next week.